because this is like this is like somebody coming in and, and saying, I've been trying to fix my posture. It's like, good luck with that, right? And then they always come in. It's like, well, shouldn't you pull your shoulders back and you go, but how much? Is it six degrees? Is it 14 inches? Is it as far as it'll go? Or is it halfway? It's like, nobody knows the answers to these things. Good morning. Really? Um, so I, I have a question about basically, you're trying to bring someone back and they have a lot of abdominal scarring from prior surgeries. Um, I, I assume it, it's a negative influence. Um, I wanted to talk. ask a question. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Is it's influence the fact that um, it's producing um, a uh, restriction in movement by like a tension related restriction or the fact that they can't manage the pressure in the abdomen because you're going to have two scenarios here depending on like the degree like is it is it pinning is it is it turning into like a rectus strategy or is it more like like a narrow isa that can't pressurize and then they got the expanded representation in the belly um in this circumstance i'd call it the expanded representation but i'd have to assume in some regards it could be both yeah but but it, like visually Visually, it's expanded. Okay, yeah. In so this particular scenario. I'm with you. Okay, I, now I understand. Uh -huh. But so I, I would assume you can end up with some excessive yielding that allows the expansion while also some scarring down that prevents the movement. Right, but but I think, I again, from a starting conditions standpoint, um, you, your, your first, your first thought process would be, okay, this person is having pressurization issues. So it's a, like the shape. Gotcha. Right. Um, it's it it looks more like the guts are spilling over the top of the pelvis. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's not that they couldn't be compressing from the top down like a tube of toothpaste, right? So the the, the first question that I would ask though is do I have something in the abdomen that's holding the sternum down? Right. Right. And you could do that very quickly. You just throw them on their back and do do some form of activity where they they would need to produce the anterior posterior expansion and then see where it moves mm -hmm. right and if you get the sort of like the belly breath kind of a thing then i would be working on making a space up top and then creating the ir position up below it to allow them to push the pressure upward okay okay you understand um how much how much abdominal activity would you want in that circumstance? Enough. Okay. <laughs> okay. To not to not overwhelm anything, but enough to. Well, okay. So so in, in, so here's like this is a real time coaching thing, which is which is which is kind of nice. It's like so we're just going to put them on their back in like a hook line position just to make life simple. Okay. And so so when you think about the axial skeleton expanding during an inhalation, we would expect everything to expand at the same time, right? So you get you get the, the thorax is expanding because of the volume of air is increasing. That's pushing the abdominal contents down into the abdomen a little bit. So that's going to expand in a controlled manner, okay? But if I have an acceleration of abdomen and no change in, in the thorax, it's like, I think it gets pretty clear as to where you got too much yield. Okay, so under that circumstance, you need to tune those connective tissues a little bit more effectively, which means that um, the the emphasis 
the emphasis is going to be on the sensation of posterior expansion. Makes sense. Okay, because if, if you can get them to sense the expansion into the surface that they're laying on, then again, what you're going to do is like, you're not going to have the eccentrically oriented representation of, of abdominals per se, right? You're going to have more concentric orientation and then a controlled yield as, the, as it expands. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And so, so the, this is where, you know, that, that, you know, that nice tubular shape that you get on like narrow ISAs after about the third set of stuff. And it's like their ribs sort of disappear. And then they look like just a big hot dog laying on the table, you know, where they have this nice cylindrical kind of representation. Yes. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's not normally how I think about it. Well, <laughs> there you go. It's like, I've stared at enough people. I, I need to be creative. Right. Um, but, but that's kind of what, Again, you're you're gonna you're gonna coach this in real time, but but the idea is like, okay, so here's what you don't want to tell them to do. You don't want to tell them to contract the abdominal muscles, ever, right? Because the minute you start doing that, what is their perception of what you just instructed them to do? Uh, their perception is whatever they've been doing, probably. Yeah. So it's like, so okay. Oh, abdominal muscles. That's a, that's a crunch. That's the way it would feel on a plank. That like yeah. like they're going, like they're going through all the scenarios in their head about oh this is what Alex means. Yeah, right? that just, it tends to make it worse. Absolutely, it does because this is like this is like somebody coming in and, and saying I've been trying to fix my posture. It's like good luck with that, right? And then they always come in. It's like well, shouldn't you pull your shoulders back and you go? But how much? Is it six degrees? Is it fourteen inches? Is it as far as it'll go? Or is it halfway? It's like nobody knows the answers to these things. So, so again, it's, it's better to, get, to give them, this is where, you know, a mixture of internal, external cues can, can be, be helpful. But generally speaking, it's going to be like something that's going to be external. It's like, I need you to feel the expansion going in a direction. And then usually the surface is great because it's a physical contact, right? This is why foot contacts are important. Pelvis contacts are important, thorax and so on and so forth. So you're going to direct that. And then number one, give them time to screw it up. Okay, and then correct it, right? And then you you understand the visual representation of that you're that you're going for. And then if you can't get it, then you have you're going to have to do it segmentally, right? So you're going to have to do one part at a time. So this might be you know one of like a a PNF upper extremity activity, um, a reach, a static hold, or whatever to promote a a, a regional. Mm -hmm. change right before right. you try to go after the systemic stuff or right. or you're going to do are you going to do it mechanically with your hands like you're going to you're going to become the compression so they can expand elsewhere and again that's your that's just your manual technique right yeah yeah i mean i've, I've definitely like held people's ribs down oh yeah on one side or both sides or whatever yeah um what was i going to say so in regards to the other situation um, where they're not too expanded, too much yield anteriorly, but they do have some sort of restriction, would that be, would that potentially be a situation in which you'd have to do something more manual? And, and so in this circumstance, you'd, you'd probably end up in the opposite scenario where they'd have some sort of bend 
creating, I don't know if, I don't know if you'd even Actually, call it posterior expansion, but. Yeah. So um, the, the way that you could, the way that you could treat it would be a little bit more like, like the rectus strategy. You ever have, you ever have somebody that has the, you know, they got the, the vertical that goes like right down the linea alba from sternum to pubis. The vertical what? Scar. Oh, um, I'm not sure if I've seen that, but I mean, you know, the scars. Yeah. yeah. So you'd have to lengthen that the same way. Yeah, but, but, and again, it's like, how old is the scar? How much adaptability do you have, right? That becomes a little bit of the, of the problem. You know, you have somebody that had, that surgery, you know, 10 years ago, and they've had this restriction for 10 years. And then you've got a whole series of adaptations. Yeah, now you're going to be it's like, okay, let's just say I can't change this. What can I influence in a favorable way? Right. Then you're, you're going to play that game. It's like, okay, I, I've got to, I've got to determine what your adaptability is and use everything that I possibly can as a substitution for it. Yeah. In that situation, um, would we be moving more, like the in the male circumstance, would you be moving more along the lines of rectus, or or would you be trying to facilitate more of the normal pattern of the guts movement? Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I know. Not the answer that you wanted to hear. Like you can, you can, you can try, you can try to reduce it. Like there may be enough yield that, that you'll get, you'll get some measure of a, of a favorable expansion, but that you run that test. Like you just have to run the test and you say, okay, this is not going to, work, or it is going to work. Right. And then from the remainder, it's like, that's where you got to make your decisions as to whether you're going to apply hands to promote, mm -hmm. you know, elsewhere do i need to reduce muscle activity and then can i fill the available space that i do have yeah it's just pro like your your question is more about process really right like, yeah i guess so yeah yeah so you spend you spend more time during the conscious hours trying to resolve right the limited number of options so you're trying to restore options so that when they do go to sleep, they're not limited in options. Hello, Bill. Uh, uh, I have a, a small question about breathing. Uh, how, I, how do you cue uh, uh, someone who is uh, compressed in the, in the upper thorax to, uh, to breathe without using the neck muscles, the accessory muscles of the breathing, I mean, even, even if they sense that they do this, uh, how would you, um, how would you make it uh, for them more, more accessible to, to really stay without the scaling, without the, the, the muscles here? Well, you always use scalings when you breathe. It's just a matter of degree. Right? Fair? Yeah. Yes. I want to make that clear. It's like, because scalings get branded as an accessory muscle, but what it is, it's just an accessory degree of activity because they're, they're always active there. So um, in what position, in what position can you make it easier 
to open an airway and reduce the position of the muscle activity itself. Would you want to start them upright? Would you want to start them upright? Or would you put them more supine? Uh, supine or even prone, no? Prone's kind of hard. Prone's kind of hard at first for most folks, for most folks, um, because of the head control position. Like if you got to twist your head from one side to the other, you don't want to twist the airway, right? I don't want to compress. I don't want to compress something that I need to expand, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you think about so uh, if I was upright and I was using a lot of neck musculature, in what position would I put the head relative to the rest of the of the body that would um, allow many of those muscles to not have to remain in concentric orientation just by position alone? Maybe take the head back. Okay, so if I tip the head back and I have an anteriorly oriented thorax, what's um, happening in the airway? Oh, I, I didn't mean, I mean, meant not to tilt the head back, but slide it back. Like, like a chin tuck? No, no, not a chin tuck, but back the relationship between the head and the neck and the, and the spine. Uh-huh. Back, back to normal. What's normal? Um, What's the I, what I mean is to to prevent from forward head. Okay, what's wrong with forward head? It uh, it tenses the neck muscles. Okay, what if I positioned it passively in that position and I reduce the muscle activity of the neck? So if I lay you on your back. Okay. And I support your head away from the table. Do you have to hold it there? No. 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 So I get a reduction in motor output, don't I? No. Okay. So, right? You so mean I'd have the upper cervical ER. Hang on a second. I have upper cervical ER. I have lower cervical. Um, I have upper cervical IR, lower cervical ER under that circumstance, don't I? Yes. Awesome. Okay. Can you see that that I would be supporting it in a position where the muscles would would not have to be producing tension to hold that position anymore? Hmm. Okay, if I push back under any circumstance, what's going to happen to the airway? If if you tilt the head, back. no. If like you said, you said push it back so it's normal, right? I don't want to do that, do I? What happens to the hyoid when I do that? Constricts, Con contracts. Well, it, it flattens and it moves up, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd be compressing the airway anterior, posterior. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Is that what I want to do? Is that what I want to do? No, no. No, I want the hyoid, I want the hyoid in, a, in a lower position. I want the airway open, okay? Mm -hmm. If I have a lot of anterior orientation of thorax and my head goes back to the table, I'm bending the, the I'm bending the airway backwards and making a smaller space, right? Uh -huh. So if I yes. lift my head up, if I if I lift my head up away from the from the table, the airway is going to open. And I'm going to support them in a position where the muscles are approximated but don't have to produce tension. Mm -hmm. So if someone like this would would ask you how to sleep at night, would you? Eyes closed most of the time. 
<laughs> I mean, would you put them on a slant like to to how would you how would you create uh, the the circumstances that uh, the support would stay there? I would do everything that I could to promote the appropriate shape changes, the muscle activity that would reduce that position, and then tell them to go to sleep. Do you know how hard it is to follow instructions when you're asleep? Yeah, of course, but but uh, but uh, you can uh, facilitate the conditions. Okay. So what because condition? What condition could you facilitate in this circumstance? The same thing we're just talking about, the same thing that we're talking about. I'm going to support your head in a position where the airway would be most open with the with the lowest degree of muscle activity, right? And you would say, start here, because they're going to move at nighttime. They're, everybody moves at night. Okay. Yeah, they move, but it, it's, it's uh, eight hours where the subconscious is doing what it is used to do. So I, I thought maybe there is a so, way. Okay. So when they're awake and conscious, that's where you solve the problem. Okay. When they're asleep, you might have to give them an orthotic, which is the pillow position. Some people need an appliance to hold their jaw in a position, right? That will continue to keep the airway open and the muscle activity reduced. So maybe you need some help. Maybe they got to go to the dentist and they got to get a they got to get a splint for for nighttime so that the jaw position is, is being maintained in some way, shape or form. Some people use forced air. Yeah. Like they, they push air down their, down their throat all night, right? Okay, yes. we don't wanna to have to do that. We don't wanna to have to do that. So you spend, you spend more time during the conscious hours trying to resolve, right? The limited number of options. So you're trying to restore options so that when they do go to sleep, they're not limited in options, okay? You can only accommodate nighttime so much, right? Because it makes people miserable, makes people miserable, right? It's like, try to, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like the, the posture thing that we talked about earlier in the call. It's like, it's like trying to tell people to like, like, they come in and they think they understand what good posture is. And it's like, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. I do Alexander. I do, what's the other, what's the other postural, uh, uh, Goscue, uh, you know, I do, I do this, I do that, I do this. And it's like, now I have good posture. It's like, well, yeah, but you can't move, right? Because oh. they've been chasing these, these so-called perfect, perfect positions. It's like nighttime, we don't want to turn nighttime into that. What we want to do is make sure they have options before they go to bed, right? I want to make sure you have options before you exercise. I, I thought maybe you know in when there when there is a, a very strong turn in the spine to the to the right, wouldn't and someone is missing the 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 late the late presentation in the in the right and the early in the left, wouldn't it be uh, wise to put a pillow under the under the right pelvis, you know, to just to not to do it aggressively, but to shape, to give this orthotics and some something to uplift here to create more. Is that comfortable? Can they sleep that way? Will they not move? How long will they stay in that position? 
Right. Right. I mean, maybe, maybe you can do that. Maybe you can do that. Okay. I don't know how effective, I don't know how effective those techniques are. Having tried them in the past, I'm, I have much greater success when people are actually awake and conscious and working on what they're doing. And then they tend to have not so many problems at nighttime. Right. Mm -hmm. If you have those problems at nighttime and it's a positional issue, and again, an airway issue specifically, call the dentist and get some help because they can usually they can usually help you with appliances and such versus trying to stick somebody in a position and try to sleep there. It's really hard to do. Right. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to think, like trying to think your way through sleep is like really hard to do. Right. The idea is not to, to make them stick there, just to let them sense what... I don't want them to sense anything. I want them to close their eyes and get... I want eight hours of sleep so that they feel so much better the next day that they can do stuff. Right? And I realize that this is, this is not an easy... I don't want to imply that, oh, this is so easy. Just let them sleep. It's like, I get it. Like, I get it. Like, some people... like. You know, why can't some people lay on their left shoulder at nighttime because it hurts? It's like, okay, they're the wrong shape. Are you going to change that shape by laying on it at nighttime? Probably not. That's going to be really horribly uncomfortable, right? So you work on shape changes when they're awake and conscious, and then you go, oh, look, I can now lay on my left side. Okay. And when they sit, let's, let's leave the night the sleep. But when they sit a long time in front of a desk, is there a way to create a a shape, for example, that would in increase the the late strategy in the, in the right and the early in the left, and not not just by the, not just yeah, by they, the they do exercises twice a day to offset that, and then they remind themselves to get up and move around during the day. Okay, okay? so here's what I want you to do, Annette. Here, let me let me help you. All right, okay. sit up as tall as you can. Okay, as tall as you can. Okay. And then I want you to push your uh, right hip forward ahead of the left for me, but keep your legs parallel. Not your okay. shoulder, not your shoulder, just your hip. Okay. okay. All right. You feel the position? Yeah. I want you to stay there for the remainder of the call and I want you to tell me how great you feel by the end. The, the, the goal is not is that to what you want to do to people. Is that what you want to do to people? You want to make you want to stick them in a position and you want to say, stay there because this is better. Does it feel better to hold that position for 20 minutes? No. No. Options feels good. Teach them, uh -huh. okay. teach them to acquire the options in a in a in a, a focused period and then repeat it enough times. So this is this is learning. Right? They have to learn. They have to learn to help maintain their options. Right? You can give them cues, like periodically just remind yourself to find this position and then forget about it. Right? That's okay. But you, you don't want to say, this is a position. The minute you start doing that, people start chasing the position more than you're asking them to do. They think yeah. it's better. They think it's better. And then they try to get into that position. And then they cheat into that position because they don't know what they're doing right? Yeah. They're trying to interpret your instructions and then they magnify those instructions in their head because they want to do well for you, right? And then they do too much of it and then they have to compensate and then they come back in, they go, you know, that, that pain in my right hip, it's in my left hip now. Yeah, they, and they develop a body dysmorphia and they are flawed. 
And well, it, again, it's like, it's like focus your activities. Like when you're exercising, I want you to focus in like, like people you ever have, you teach breath stuff, right? Okay. Did you ever have, have people come back and they say, you know, I've been breathing like that all the time, or I've been trying to breathe like that all the time. Did you give them that instruction? No. You tell them to breathe like that all the time? No. You told them to do it during their exercise, but their perception is, oh, this is better. I need to do this all the time. And then they start cheating. Yeah. Right? And then you have, to, you have another problem to undo. Focus your efforts, restore options, do enough to maintain those options. And then you rarely have to give instructions outside of those, those time periods. <clears throat> Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Morning. Greetings. Uh, so I've been kind of trying to reason through yielding a little bit more. Uh -huh. um, and so I feel like ultimately what I've come down to is first that it's it's like a change in velocity relative to something else um but the the bigger the biggest description for me between like yielding and overcoming seems to be like the uh direction of force application relative to the direction that said thing is moving uh-huh so for like yielding it would be against you or it and then overcoming would be with it is that fair to say that is, that is pretty fair. That's that's a pretty good reasoning. Yeah. Is it is it fair to say that it it's a change in velocity relative to something? Oh, absolutely. Okay. In, in in almost every case. Okay. It's the, it, it's the easiest it's the easiest way to see it. In fact, right. Um, depending on context, but but yeah, you've got the right idea. So. Um... A lot of times I think of like an ER system as being like more space, um, but in, in reality, it's like more space time. So is it fair to say that like a yielding component is partially like an expansion of time in the same way that like, so when you're trying to facilitate like an adaptation to gain more ER uh -huh. um, and you get like a change, in, like an increase in eccentric muscle positioning like that would be a, an increase in space but if, you, if you're trying to gain like a, a yielding component to it you're expanding like the time absolutely strength of that yes yes because so, what what you're not getting what you're not getting under that circumstance so like the eccentric orientation would cause like the joint change of position but the timing would be associated with the connective tissue behavior okay and, and so if we differentiate this between like yielding and overcoming, um, mm -hmm. I was thinking about this in the context of like a, like a high arch foot, mm -hmm. uh, where, I mean, the shape's not exactly the same, but it's pretty darn similar, I think, a lot of the time. And so there is a little bit less space um, to move, but there's also, I think, less time to move. And so like a, a high arch foot with overcoming connective tissues moves you faster as a result. And then a high arch foot with yielding connective tissues provides more time yes. for you to go through positional change. Correct. And thus more 
quality or more options. Mm -hmm. um, good so far? Yeah, so, so let's, let's just use the foot for an example, okay? So if you had an early foot versus a late foot, they're both ER representations, but the differential between the two is the connective tissue behaviors are, are, are different. I have a yielding representation um, in the early foot where I have an overcoming representation in the late foot. One of those is moving slower than the other, right? And, and again, that's, that's why like that's why the behavior is as it is because I need I have a timing factor that's associated with like, let's just say I'm walking I have a timing factor that one side has to slow down relative to the other side otherwise the other side doesn't get ahead of it so there has to be the the relative timing difference and the connected tissue behavior will provide that hmm. okay makes sense mm -hmm. um so I was also thinking this in the context of like um exercises in which you're not exercises in which you are not moving um so like <laughs> okay <laughs> so like a squat hold for example uh -huh. like if you're holding your elbows there you're sitting I'm there with you. I'm with absolutely um, obviously you are moving so there's like multiple cycles of breath happening there's other mm -hmm. stuff going on mm -hmm. um and so within that you're getting like a maybe like a smaller in overall magnitude, but a consistent yielding overcoming that can facilitate an increase in movement options. But then I'm contrasting that in my head with like a say reverse sled drag where you're kind of in the same position, but you are um, walking backwards. Uh -huh. um, and it seems to me like that option would create more yielding, more improvement in space than something in which you are not moving forward or backwards. Okay. Uh, oh. But but I'm not sure if that's true because like even if you are standing still within space, like you are yielding, yielding, yielding every time you you take a breath. Yeah. Um. Magnitude, location, direction, duration, frequency, variability, and range. Okay. So those are your seven components of force. So under the circumstance, let's narrow it down and let's just go with location. Like where is the application? Um, in this, in a static activity, there is less change as to where the force application would be applied. Right. Mm -hmm. So we could say that we have like more of like a focal local influence. There's global influence. There's no question about that. But let's just say that we're chasing something specific. We're chasing like a like a pelvic orientation. Um, like let's just say we're we're trying to buy some more towards like an iron pelvis. So we're gonna do something that's in the the middle range of a squat as far as the static representation would be. That we're gonna use that same uh, similar representation. Um, with the sled drag. Sled yeah. drag has more more variability in it, right, as to where um, the the energy will be transferred from one place to the other. Therefore, the force applied would be different as, as you're moving through space. Doesn't mean that you can't get the same end result, right? Um, because again, the, the, the level of, of change is a little bit different 
um, you might have like a greater transfer of energy with the sled drag that would produce a same adaptation that let's just again chasing the pelvis pelvis orientation that would provide us the same degree of change um, in in regards to the outcome even though they are they are somewhat different we're applying it within this a a similar range at a different rate with greater variability but I would get the same quantity of adaptation in the same location even though I have a more distributed representation in the sled drag. Okay. There's more than one, one, there's more than, as they say, more than one way to skin a cat, what a horrible little representation that is, but there's actually 82, depending if you start from the ears or the tail, but you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, does, does that, am I make, making sense in that regard? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm just I'm trying to put in the picture of which activities and when and. Okay, so yeah. Um, which one is of higher complexity? The sled drag would be more complex. Absolutely, which is why, which is why, in, you know, in a rehab setting, when you have, you know, people that don't have great movement experiences and things like that, or they, we need to assure that we're getting the focal local representation that we want. That's why we would start with a static activity because there's, it's less complex for them to manage because there's enough things to think about. It's like when you think about like ground contacts, uh, breathing. Uh, positions, muscle activity, et cetera. It's like they're very, very complex exercises, even the static in a static representation. Then to make it dynamic, it's like that could be even harder. And so um, the, 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 then the answer is I would prefer, I would prefer it to be dynamic because that's how people tend to move, right? But, you know, when you're initiating this stuff, like that's why we might have to use a static activity. Then it behooves you to understand what we just talked about in regards to um, the difference between the two, right? As to what adaptation I'm trying to influence to the greatest degree, what will give me the biggest bang for my buck? Am I working with an NBA basketball player, or am I working with you know a mother of, of three that that you know was a cheerleader in high school but hasn't done anything physical for 20 years? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I think you understand. You know by your description but but the, the the concept of time absolutely okay yeah i'm trying to i've been trying to get a better handle on that whole thing yeah if you look at uh, uh jump off a box okay stick the landing and hold versus land and jump the relative timing there, okay. So when you look at the when you look at the position on the ground where where they would land and stick, it's like the duration that they're in that position, they're like they would achieve a similar position under both circumstances, but the time that they would be spending in that position would be different. And so the dampener under this circumstance is the connective tissue behavior, right? That would be the yield in the in the landing versus the yield to overcome in a shorter time window, right? And it would be the connective tissue behavior that would be associated with the, the transfer of energy um, in yeah. both in both circumstances. One is it one is dampening and dissipating it. The other one it's storing it and releasing it in a direction. Right. So not to get too theoretical, but if we if we take a circumstance of like a 
uh, static squat positioning mm -hmm. to gain ER. So there's there's probably a tipping point in which if you stay there too long, you start to get tired and you start to narrow space. Yes. Uh, so similarly, like you're accruing time up to a given point, which is going to increase your overall yielding space, whatever. At a certain point, you'll start to like narrow that same time to the point where it becomes like less effective, just the same yeah. way you're narrowing the space. Yes, sir. Cause as, as you approach like the most maximally IR representation. Uh, I, yes, you would be moving in that, you would ultimately be moving in that direction. Right. Cause at, at some point in time, you're going to, you're going to have to squeeze again. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, okay. Look, look, look at, at this. Goes back to Dale's question, actually. Um, when, um, in regards to connective tissue behaviors, right? You're going to have you're going to have a certain amount of stress relaxation. You're going to have a certain amount of creep, and then you're going to hit. They're going to hit like you're going to hit that vertical line that's on the curve, right? Or on one side, it's like okay. Um, is there enough load to cause a deformation to take you into the plastic region or are you basically at the end of the elastic element? Mm. Right? Like under most active circumstances, um, be because the, of the muscle activity, like if, if you're holding a static representation, can you appreciate the fact that um, you would have an increasing degree of concentric orientation of the muscle in that position as the connective tissue yields? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So keep going, right? Until the connective tissue no longer has any more yielding capabilities. Like take it to the end of the yield. You got a concentric in muscle and you're at the end of the connective tissue behaviors. The only thing you can do at that point is start squeezing. Is, how do you, would you determine that threshold? Um, okay. Do you think you can take a, a normal breath under the circumstance? Okay, yeah. That would be an easy way to do it, right? The other would be, it's like, okay, I have a KPI that I'm going to utilize to determine my success with the intervention. Like, what is the influence on the KPI? So if, if my goal was to gain ER in this activity, right? And I don't, or I see a decrement, right? Then I created the interference. Right? I went too long. I gave him too much medicine, right? It's like, well, how much time do I have? What's the most important thing? If I got if I got a kid for a year, I got lots of time. I can start, I can start to spread this stuff out to a certain degree. But you always have something that would be primary, something that might be on maintenance, and then something that you're trying to prevent the decline of. So I've been just thinking about the organization of training a little bit in terms of like when we select activities, obviously we wanna be clear about what the adaptation is that we're going for, um, or I guess careful not to muddy the waters where like if we're, if we're looking for like an output-based activity, force production, for example, mm -hmm. um, we don't wanna water that down too much in the sense of like, obviously we wanna maybe set up some constraints to make it more um, optimal for somebody's structure um, and where they are. Yeah. But we still might want to accept that it's going to cause some interference in the sense of if, if we're trying to 
get somebody into a better spot, but we still have to raise some performance qualities at the same time. Okay. Um, so I've just been kind of thinking about how I go about it and wondering if, you know, in, I guess, traditionally, we talk about using some rolling activities, ground-based activities to create a window of opportunity. Uh-huh. And then you might take that into training to utilize said window of opportunity. Um, but if we're gonna put things in there that we know are gonna be higher force and their force limit movement a little bit, does it make more sense to almost use like a high-low type approach throughout a, a week of training and say, okay, well, this, this day or these two days are gonna be more uh, performance-based or output-based and then if that's the case, does it make more sense to open that window of opportunity post-training more so than pre-training? So I guess what I'm thinking is like, still want to obviously do some things up front to move around a bit. And, but, but maybe from just like a time standpoint, like if we have a set amount of time, like we have two hours to train or something like that with a, with a group of guys or girls. Um, do we kind of hit something a little bit more general up front that's a little bit quicker, knowing that the training is going to take away some movement mm-hmm. and then spend up more time on the back end doing things that maybe traditionally we would have done up front on a day that was geared towards utilizing that window of opportunity a little bit more so that they're leaving the training um, in a more kind of toned down state mm-hmm. than they came. Um, and then as far as like exposures, cause I guess traditionally, if I had an athlete who's kind of in that phase where we were in a, a decent place where we were going to start to introduce more output based activities, I might litter those through a training week in smaller amounts. And then they're ending up touching that or exposing themselves to that four times a week does it make more sense to condense that into one or two days that are just a little heavier on the volume of that? But then I have more days where we're just not getting those exposures. So they're spending more time not touching those things. Okay. All right. So, um, so you're talking about concentration of loading, right? Essentially. So it's concentration of something. So, yeah. Greg, I'm going to assign you 10 different projects, okay, that you have to get done, right? And I'm going to give you two hours to work on those 10 projects, okay? And I want them done in two weeks, right? So you get two hours, four times a week to work on 10 different projects, and I need them done in, I need to get them done in two weeks. If you work a little bit on each project, okay, mm-hmm. and you got 10 projects, you only got two hours at a time, what do you think the likelihood is that you get all 10 of those projects done? Not good or not, not none of them will be done to a high quality. Okay, so, so you, you're dilute, you're, you're, you're minimizing the, the, the capability of getting something to, to the finished representation by having so many things to do, mm-hmm. right? And so 
or would it be better would it be better to get all of one project done and then all the next project done and then all the next project done and all the next project done you get more finished right by the end of the two weeks than if you try to do a little bit of each right right and so that's kind of what we're talking about so so you have a you have a fixed amount of time you've got you got fixed windows of exposure and then you have to say okay what is the most important thing that we have to get done like what is what is the linchpin if you will of of this this athlete's performance like if i get this to the point where where it is optimized what is the greatest adaptation that i that i need to seek and that's where i would spend a majority of my initial time because it's going to have the greatest impact on the outcome it doesn't mean that i ignore everything else it just means that that there will be a priority that if I don't spend enough time on it, I will not get any desired outcome because the, the efforts will be, will be insufficient in regards to the concentration of the effect, right? So if you do yep. one set, if you do one set of max effort work, okay, one set, there's an adaptation that's associated with that. <clears throat> the question mark is, is that sufficient? Is that sufficient to raise that that physical quality, or is it enough to maintain it, or is it just going to prevent the? It's going to slow the decline. So those are your basic options, right? I'm going to raise it, I'm going to maintain it, or it's going to slowly decline over time, and I control that. Mm -hmm. right? And so when when you're when you're organizing this, um, you have to consider like, okay, uh, and you you run in the same pickle that we do. Like we'll get somebody for like six weeks, eight weeks. Right, like we, they're, we're squeezing them in between a season or something like that, and and so a lot of the training literature is associated with long-term training adaptations as far as its organization is concerned, and so you have to take that into consideration. It's like, well, how much time do I have? What's the most important thing? If I got if I got a kid for a year, I got lots of time. I can start I can start to spread this stuff out. To a certain degree, but you always have something that would be primary, something that might be on maintenance, and then something that you're trying to prevent the decline of. So let me give you an example. Um, let's just say you develop somebody's oxidative capacity for a field sport. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and one of those elements would be the, the cardiac side of, of development, where I need to assure that he can recover between um, uh, uh, outputs, right? So football player, soccer player, whatever, okay? And, and so we initially develop his, his cardiac capacity, heart rate, resting heart rate goes down, recovery times are shortened, et cetera. But then I got to skew towards higher force production. I got to go towards some cross-sectional area development or something like that. That would be interference to the oxidative element. Right. So then the question mark is, is like, OK, how much of that do I need? How much can I allow this oxidative component to decline? Right. How can I maintain that in the midst of all this? And so what I might do is I make sure that he has this oxidative capacity. And then like every two or three weeks, we do a couple of days of concentrated load of the cardiac development stuff. So it either maintains or prevents the decline of that physical quality. What in the midst of knowing fully well that it would, it would interfere normally with my force production stuff, okay, potentially, 
um, but I'm only doing it over a very small window, so the degree of interference becomes minimized, right? Um, you, you've read Charlie Francis stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, that was kind of my high-low reference there, yeah. Okay, yeah, so, so that becomes useful because, because what he's doing, and, and if anybody hasn't, it's, it's a, if you look up vertical integration, you'll be able to find what we're, what we're talking about. He's, he's exposing, like you, you have all of these adaptations that need to be present. The question mark is, is are you in a developmental stage of that or are you in a maintenance stage? Or like I said, are you just trying to slow the decline of it so that there's enough of it present for performance level? And that's, that's kind of the, what you gotta, that's kind of what you gotta figure out. And it's gonna change um, depending on the level of your athlete. Right. And so this is where you run into like concurrent development versus concentrated loads. And the higher the level of development of your athlete, the more concentrated load needs to be because their windows of opportunity are smaller. Okay. So from a structural standpoint, like you could do everything that we just talked about in a workout. Yeah. Okay? But it would be, it would, it would be nothing would be like in a concentrated um, manner, um, but for a lower qualified athlete, because their, their level of development is not so high, that might be the perfect structure for them where they get exposed to a lot of different things. They, they can promote a lot of different adaptations all at the same time, all right? But as they progress, that's where you start to see these big differentials where now I need to go through a, a block of training that might be on maximal strength development or another block of training where the greatest degree of emphasis is on restoring movement capability. And it doesn't mean you don't do the high force stuff. It just means that, okay, where does the volume of that fall where it, it could be on maintenance level? Like how many exposures does an athlete need to maintain? How much volume does this athlete need to maintain? And that's where there's individualization that, that runs into a problem, especially when you work with big groups. But that's the reality, right? So right. maybe maybe you do a maximal strength exposure. Like you, you have like out of three days, you do, you know, two maximal strength workouts. And then for the next 10 days, the focus is elsewhere. And then you come back and then you re-expose them. Again, so you're preventing the decline of their force capability. 